Welcome to the Culture and Performance Podcast with me, Ben Ryan. I got some terrific feedback from our opening show of the series with Alistair McCaw, so thank you for all those who reached me via my website and social channels. Please keep that going, but it would also be great if you put a review on the Apple Podcasts app. That seems to be the place that the feedback really makes a difference to get new subscribers and new listeners. So I'd love you all to do that if you can spare a moment. Now, today's guest is professional tennis player, Olympic medalist and founder of the brilliant High Impact Athletes organization, New Zealander Marcus Daniel. If I give that money away and know that it's improving lives, ultimately I'm going to be happier. What I see as the levels go higher is coaches aren't willing to put their foot down or aren't willing to really call people out on their crap. It was a bad move looking back. If there was any decision that I could change about my career, it would be that one. The chat you're about to hear is a very honest one from someone who's learned so much from the journey he has taken. It's easy to think that being a professional athlete means that not only do you know it all about preparation and performance, but that you also have an entourage around you to help and guide you. But for the huge majority of those that make a living playing sport professionally, there is no full-time support group. They're often doing the majority of their work on their own. Being self-sufficient is something we talk a lot about and how you can become more self-reliant and proactive. Going to Olympic Games and how being part of a bigger group really added value for him. And we expand upon the mistakes he has made and the learnings from it all. Away from the court, the obvious drive that Marcus has, has propelled him into starting an organisation called High Impact Athletes which aims to assist sports people with charitable giving. And that's a rich part of the diet of topics that we touch upon this week. But we start with how he had to choose at a pretty early age between tennis and football, two sports he was playing at international level. I love team sports. I love playing in a team. I think the sort of gladiatorial nature of tennis and the fact that all of the responsibility and all of the, I guess, as, as a corollary all of the glory so to speak uh, is on yourself in tennis I think that grabbed me a little more so I yeah focused on that and I really I the thing is growing up on a farm in New Zealand I didn't have reference points I, I had no idea what the global standard was I didn't know if the people around me knew what the global standard was so you know we were sort of going on trust from people we were close to but it was it was more of a personal decision around what I enjoyed more or what, what called to me more. And it was a very close decision in complete honesty. Uh, I regretted that decision for a large chunk of the early stages of my tennis career because the lower level professional tennis events are brutal. They're in really out of the way places. Your expenses are huge. It's tough. Like the, the, the tennis is high level, but you're not, you don't have anything to show for it. Even if you win a tournament like that, you're probably in the negative each week. So it's just like a struggle to survive long enough for your breakthrough to get into the next level. And it took me six or seven years. So for, for a lot of that time, I was thinking, why didn't I stick with soccer? And even if I was playing second or third division somewhere, you know, I'd, I'd have a, a nice little salary and like an apartment and a car and all that sort of stuff. But in the end, it worked out and I'm pretty happy with the decision. I'm always interested with with athletes on their kind of critical path where there's moments that they make decisions, you know, to stay on a track or move to somewhere, somewhere else. And you decided at a young age, what, 17 maybe, to go to Slovakia. Now, what happened there? There was actually another situation of having to trust those who were around us. There was a Slovak coach who was in New Zealand and I started working with him and he basically convinced me and my family that I should go over to Slovakia with him because I was reaching the upper edges of the competition I could find in New Zealand as a tennis player. And Europe is the, the mecca. It's the epicenter of tennis. And he made it sound like Slovakia was an amazing place to train. So, yeah, I ended up uh, flying over there at the age of 17 to a small town called Banska Bystrica in the mountains of Slovakia, where my coach was basically the only other person who spoke English in the town. And uh, I was living in this sort of abandoned university dorm building, but I was next door to a dentist. 
So there was, there was just this tiny, it sort of felt like a prison cell uh, little room, but I was hearing all sorts of weird noises coming from next door and the tennis wasn't good. I, yeah, it, it was a bad move looking back. If there was any decision that I could change about my career, it would be that one. It would be instead of going to Slovakia at 17, I would have taken one of the scholarship opportunities I had at, at a college in the States and matured a bit more and, and both physically and mentally and, and gone down that route. But, you know, it, it definitely toughened me up very quickly. I mean, when you're thrown into that situation, you have to learn immediately how to be independent and how to fend for yourself, how to get by in an area where you basically can't communicate. So, you know, that was trial by fire. And I think it, it gave me some qualities that have been useful, but it was also extremely difficult as a 17 year old. Bet it was because you managed, you stayed there for a while and then you went to Bratislava. Yeah. So with the same coach or a different coach. So after three or four months, I think in Banska Bystrica, I realized that I'd somewhat been duped that it wasn't a good situation. It wasn't an, uh, an improvement on what I had in New Zealand. And I confronted the coach and just said, look, this is terrible. I need to leave. And to his credit, he did help to find an academy in Bratislava that he introduced me to. And I stayed there for, I think, around another two and a half to three years. And that was good. It was insanely hard training. It was sort of six to eight hours a day of training. And I improved very quickly. I also ruined my body and have spent the rest of my career sort of trying to hold it together after that. That was herniated disc, right? Was that your back generally? Yeah. And did you realize when that was going on, one of the, I think you had a quote that I always love telling some lots of athletes and coaches I work with, you, you don't know what you don't know, right? And, and, I, and I guess that was the same with you at that early stage. You were very trusting with the coaches and the people around you that what they were putting you through was was for your benefit. Yeah, and I, and I didn't know any better. And, you know, I've always enjoyed the idea of working hard. You know, I, I come from a farming background. The farming background is you don't complain, you just get the work done. So I some things hurt, some things didn't feel great, but it was like, okay, you know, I'm not going to complain if this is what it requires to become a professional tennis player, this is what I'm going to do. But for example, squatting heavy weight without knowing how to squat is a recipe for disaster. And, and that's the sort of thing that I was doing. And a young body can put up with it for a while. But after a while, yeah, my, my back blew out. And that was a wake up call. That was okay, I, I need to find out a different way of doing things. And disappointingly, I have to admit that I went through a similar process about five times in terms of how I trained and the types of exercises, the types of strength training I did before I finally felt comfortable enough in my own skin just to tell a trainer, this doesn't feel good, so I'm not going to do it. And when I got to that stage, actually the last two to three years of my career have been the most injury free, which is the opposite of what should happen. You should, you should be healthier when you're younger and have a bunch of niggles when you're older. But since I've been listening to my body, and that doesn't mean not working hard. That just means understanding when pushing it is not a good thing. Yeah, since, since I've been listening more to my body and trusting that little voice that starts speaking to me, I've had far less injuries, which has been such a pleasant change because actually in, until the last few years, I don't think I played a full season once in my career. Do you think there's a pressure on players to work hard that there's almost like you, there's a minimum amount of hours that you have to put in? And if you don't, then you're just, you're just seen as being lazy or not taking things seriously. Yeah, I do. And to some extent, I think when you're younger, I agree. I think when you're building the foundation of, of your game, whatever that game is in, I think you do need to put in the hours. You need to find a way somehow to put in the hours. But I think I could be completely wrong with this, but I think there comes a point when you've been playing a sport for so long that the foundation is there and it's just polish that, that's on top of that. And so now I feel like I can be at the level that I want to be probably training half as much as I did when I was 22, 24 without feeling like I lose anything. But I think that's just a product of having spent so many hours when I was younger, sort of doing that repetition, building in the muscle memory and that sort of stuff. What, what do you think about that? 
I think you're right. I think there's a, there's that there's that moment where you've got to build your foundations, you know, and simple motor skills talk about cognitive, associative, autonomous, the three different levels until you get to that autonomous level. But then there's that art between you want to build, you don't want to break. And at those early stages, you might also be coming across coaches or people around you that don't necessarily have the skills to be able to navigate their way through that. So they look at, well, this is what everyone else is doing. You must go through however many hours a day and it accumulates and they don't have the skills to be able to pull back or they don't or perhaps the ego get although a number of different things might get in the way to stop you getting to that point where where it then you're not getting those returns on on what you're putting in it's really fascinating because i was going to ask that second question that now as somebody that does understand their body and knows how to push it and knows when to pull back and realizes the the benefits of rest as much and regeneration as much as going out there and training how does that feel like how do you know that that's the right route for you to go it's something i've struggled with because i'm fighting against that ingrained culture of don't complain get the work done and this idea that the more work i do the more i deserve to win so i have to try and quiet that voice and say, no, you know what? I've been doing this full time for you know more than 15 years now. I know the level that I need to be at. And if I polish myself up to this level, anything beyond that is actually energy lost. And okay, so I'm, I'm 32 now, which is, it's not super old, but it's also not super young. And I do have less energy less capacity than i did five ten years ago so understanding that there is a, a relationship between rest not pushing too hard but pushing enough that i'm that i'm still there and i th i mean yeah it, it does become a bit of an art because that also i find for me personally my capacity changes week to week you know whether it's because i've just changed time zone by eight hours and you know i just feel a little down and I haven't invested in this and, and perhaps I should, but, you know, things like sleep trackers or uh, things that monitor your heart rate and this sort of stuff, they might give a pretty cool insight into, into how much capacity you have on a, on a given day. But uh, yeah, for, for me, it's just been going off this feeling and I feel like I've sort of honed that feeling over the years. There's a lot of self-discovery in your sport, isn't there, as, as, as athletes? I was chatting to Michael Bourne, who's at the LTA now and, and um, used to be at UK Sport, and he was having a really interesting conversation with a football manager about how to make their players more self-sufficient. And tennis is like a perfect window into seeing the good and the bad and, and assuming you haven't got a team around you that is doing all your logistics. No, no, no one. I, I mean, some tennis players do, but if you're a doubles player, you can't afford those sorts of things. Yeah, so say you haven't got any of that, so you're doing it all yourself. You're not quite sure how long you're going to be in a tournament, um, where you might go, what's happening with the injuries, whether you need to go and find a specialist, or something, whatever it is. How do you breed those tools to be more and more self-sufficient so it doesn't get in the way of your performance? In a way, I feel like tennis pre-selects for people who can do this stuff because I, I think there are sort of two options one is you can either do this stuff or you can't and if you can't then you don't survive on tour or you're either from an extremely wealthy family or you've done really really well from a young age and you have a federation that backs you and and uh, does all this stuff for you I mean for example the, the best juniors in the world they might have a management team because of their junior success. And so they might get help with this sort of stuff, but that's a tiny, tiny percentage of, of tennis players. So if you're not part of that tiny percentage, then you just need to be able to do this stuff. Otherwise you, you won't survive on tour. There's the two parts of it though, because there could be someone that could, even in those, those young players that have all of that around them, as far as they've got a management that are booking everything and taken to places, they might still leave those athletes in a hotel for a week as they because they can't cover everyone unless, like you say, there's a tiny slice of those tennis players that literally will have somebody that's knocking on the door and getting them up and getting them, all that sort of stuff. That's still a skill that you must have had to hone over the years to get better at. I mean, what advice would you give to somebody that's maybe not in tennis, but they still need to be self-sufficient? So football's a great example. You know, they are on the, they are at the training ground, you know, 
four days out of five during the week. They've got a day off. They've got their pre-match where they're probably at home before they go to a home game. or And then their recovery days, they're normally, unless they're in one of the top clubs, they're normally left to do the recovery on their own. So there's still big areas of them having to be self-sufficient where the coach is not watching and the coach actually doesn't know what they're doing. What sort of tools and what sort of tips have you got? This is sort of a perfect example of why I chose tennis originally was if I'm left alone and I don't do the work, I lose. Like I, I, I don't improve and I lose. Uh, and I think that can be the difference between an individual sport where you get this feedback loop of I go out on court and either I win or lose. And if I haven't put the work in, then it's more likely that I'm going to lose. Whereas in a team, it can get lost in the shuffle a little bit. You know, the team can win even if you don't, play at 100% of your your possibility so yeah I think that's that's sort of what drew me to tennis or at least part of it but the I mean the overarching thing for me has always been does this add to my goals and professional sport looks great from the outside the reality for most professional sport from what I can tell is it's far less glamorous and you need to have these burning goals in you and I think it's just measuring everything that you do against those goals. Like, does this help me to become a better tennis player? And that's something that I think is hard to understand from the outside because it is a lifestyle. Like it's, it's on your rest days, you're resting because it's the right thing to do for your tennis or for your sport. So, you know, even if I'm, even if I go on a walk down the river there's some part of me that's thinking I'm doing this because I want to unwind because I feel like I need to unwind to be able to feel better for practice tomorrow or feel better for the match tomorrow. And it sounds so mercenary, but this is the thing that I think all athletes who, who have really high aspirations need to have because we need to squeeze every little extra percentage we can out of each day to keep improving and, and try to stay ahead of the pack. So in terms of it, in terms of tips, I think that would just be the, the big one is whenever you're doing something or not doing something, think about it in terms of, is this helping me become a better athlete? And if you really do want to become a better athlete, then, you know, it's, it's quite simple to keep yourself accountable. It's not easy, but it's quite simple. Is that something, because I've just written down, like if I was looking at your, you know, look at a team and this is what their performance plan or their culture looks like. So Marcus's culture look, looks like, you ask yourself two questions and you, you talked about one of them about five minutes ago, which is, you know, it's just giving me energy. And so I would then think, well, you know, therefore you're probably asking the same question. Is it taking away my energy? And then you're also talking about, is this going to help me get towards my goals? And therefore is something else going to take me away from my goals? Very similar to something Owen Eastwood talked about um, last series who, and he works with the England football team. And they asked that question in the England football team, you know, is this going to help us get closer towards the way we want to play? or take us away from it and anything that comes into the culture will this add to our energy will it take away our energy is that something that you just you're now very confident that that's a kind of a, a framework that you would use on your day-to-day -day, on and off the court absolutely and when you were just talking about that and, and from a team perspective it actually makes me remember our last davis cup tie with the new zealand team we played against Carrera and we, and we had to play it in the States because the New Zealand's borders were closed. But I've sort of grown into a bit of a leadership role within that team. So I feel like I have to be more conscious of the team's culture as a whole. And I was trying quite deliberately to think about how can we improve this culture? And it gets down to such a granular level, like even just the way that we're speaking to each other about tennis or just the, the um, tone of how we're speaking about the upcoming match. But yeah, this, it was a new experience for me, uh, thinking about it in terms of a, a team and, and how you could nip things in the bud that you knew eventually weren't going to be good and try to foster the things that you knew were going were gonna to be good. And yeah, like I said, like it, it is, um, it's such a simple concept at its heart, but it, it takes on so much nuance and reality. When you did that as, lead, as a leader, did you have a, sit down and talk about how you wanted the group to act or any rules that you put in place? Yeah, we did. So Mike Venus, who's, who's New Zealand's top doubles player, and I, we actually spoke about this together and, and said we wanted to, to sit 
down with the team and reach consensus on the things that we wanted to hold each other accountable to, you know, whether that's when we leave the locker room, we leave our cell phones in there, you know, we don't take phones out on the court and how we'd communicate, how each of us as individuals were, were best helped by the rest of the team when, when they're on the court, because some people respond really well to, you know, huge pump ups and, you know, people shouting in their faces. Others want a bit more relaxed of an atmosphere and down to things like, you know, we, we organized game nights where we'd just get together and have fun. Uh, we organized like a, a team chant that we did before we got out on, on the court and just little things like that, that even though we knew this, what, you know, we were trying to create a tradition. So in, in some senses, it felt like a reach, but just these things that brought the team together, it felt like a step in the right direction. It was actually really cool to see the effect it had on the team as a whole. Do you think it improved you as a as a player within that group or just generally? Honestly, I think it it probably made it harder for me to perform on court because I I felt like I took on quite a lot of responsibility for things off court. So I, I felt very drained at the end of the weekend. But in saying that, I think net, it was definitely a positive. I think the, the team bonded better than we had in the past. And I think, or at least I hope that some of the things that we put in will become tradition and hopefully will we'll give energy and, and sort of a, a bit of a glue to the team going forward. But yeah, like, I mean, you must know this very intimately, but that leadership role is exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, ex- it's exhausting and it can be even harder if you don't have people that perhaps can just guide you as well Mm. so whether it's the group within you that you're listening to whether it's the people below whether it's the people above or somebody from totally outside it that was my next question really was with all of this as you've kind of self-guided and then seen there's an importance there so you've obviously saw say take the davies cup team you obviously saw there would be benefit to the team to have a leadership role to talk about these things, to begin some traditions that they would continue. Have you ever sought any advice from outside? Have you got any mentors or anybody that you, that you ring up when you need help? So I, I, to be completely open, I can't take full credit for all of those ideas, um, especially the tradition part. Uh, the, the guy who was acting as Davis Cup captain there, he, was, he really wanted a, the start of a tradition he actually was a French guy and had spent time with the French Davis Cup team and spoke about the traditions that they had and thought it would be a good thing for us to have and then sort of left it up to us as to what that would look like. But yeah, in, in terms of, of mentors, I have a few. I think that by far the biggest mentor in my professional career has been David Samuel, the coach that I started working with after my back injury. I think I can safely say that without him, I wouldn't have had a successful tennis career and it's far more than just what he did on court. Actually, it's, it's mainly the work that we did together on my head, not so much on the strokes, on the movement, on, on the tennis specific stuff. It was more about mentality. And actually there's a, there's a story that's become sort of legend in the, in the Bath Academy where I just lost a, really close match in a challenger which is sort of the the mid-level tennis events and and nottingham and i thought i'd played pretty well I'd, I'd fought hard i came off court and he sat me down and just gave me a bollocking for about two hours and he talked about a thing that he made up which is called the chapel of bullshit and he told me that i was worshiping at the chapel of bullshit because i would use small things that happened during a match as reasons for why today wasn't my day. So, you know, a small piece of luck, like the other guy would hit a a net cord winner and I'd just assume that that was the key point in the match and that things were downhill from there. So I'd still try, I'd still fight, I'd still run as hard as I could, but mentally there was this tiny little switch off. And the Chapel of Bullshit talk was all about identifying those little switch offs and basically saying, don't worship like get out of the chapel. And from that point, so that, that was pretty hard to hear. I think I lost uh, 7-6, 7-6 that match against a good player. Pretty hard to get bollocked for a couple of hours after that. But about, I want to say about an hour and a half in, it started making sense. And I realized that I wasn't 
100% there mentally for every point. And if you're not 100% there men- mentally for every point, you're not 100% there mentally. And he and I made an agreement going forward that uh, during training, if I switched off more than three times, so on more than three shots, individual shots, we'd stop practice. And it was incredible how exhausting that was. I think the first practice I lasted around half an hour and I was done, you know, being, being extremely conscious about being switched on for every single shot. It took the intensity five levels higher, but that was the start of me understanding the idea of mental intensity and sustained mental intensity. And uh, that was all down to him and basically down to him having the balls to call out someone who was actually on like a decent path, but just saying, look, like you're going to be a tourist if you keep doing this and walking that line. And I think I also have to give myself a little credit for hearing that and responding rather than, you know, walking away. But that was the start of me succeeding in tennis. I mean, it took, you know, it took some time, but that was a key turning point for me in my career. And yeah, I, I can't thank him enough for it. And he's, he's been a huge mentor for me for, for over 10 years now. Marcus, that's an awesome story. I love hearing athletes talk about their coaches and when their face lights up and it's a story that's cemented a lot of what they do going forward. You know, the coaches are here to serve, right? And he, he did that. Did he, you have an, a, a good enough relationship for him to just decide to be as open as he was at that point? He's a pretty singular character. He's like that with everyone. And I think that's actually a, a huge quality of his because it seems, and I, I wonder if you've seen this as well. It seems to me that the higher you get up in sport, the less coaches are willing to speak completely straight to athletes. And this might be m- more the case in, um, in sports where the athlete employs the coach because, you know, like we, as, as tennis players, we pay the coach's salary and if we stop getting along with the coach, then the coach doesn't have a job anymore because we move on. So it's quite, a, it's quite a tenterhook sort of relationship. But what I see as the levels go higher is coaches aren't willing to put their foot down or aren't willing to, to really call people out on their crap because they're afraid of losing their jobs. But Dave isn't like that at all. He says exactly what he thinks needs to be heard and for me, as, a, as an athlete, I love that because I don't have time for sugarcoating. I have a short career. I want to get the absolute max I can out of it. So, you know, the blunter, the more direct it can be, the better. Would you, is, it, is that the same in, in team sports? Or I guess there's a bit more, um, more sort of salary-based might change it? There's definitely a connection between as you get more experience as a coach and more confident in your competency – then you see the signal quickly and you, and you, and the noise, you know, very quickly disappears and you get to it and you, and you don't hang around with an athlete or a team by just ignoring it. You get straight to the point, how you get to the point and how coaches attack that is very different based upon personalities. And in team sports, there's so many different personalities and they come from such different backgrounds that that approach in a team sport you've got to be careful how you, how you do it. You might lose a player. If you start to have a go at them publicly, that just might, that you've lost them there because, you know, they come from a, a background where that just doesn't happen. It's all about, you know, you're literally, you know, they're a kid that's grown up in an estate in South East London where, you know, losing respect from people by having arguments in public, you know, that it's everything to them. So you've got to find a different way to navigate your way around it. And it's the same, you know, when back in Fiji, in the whole culture is based around not having arguments in public. So the answer is, yeah, I'm sure like Dave, he would have he would have had the skills to be able to navigate his way in a team sport because he would have seen the signal and he would have also there seen how to approach it with each each person. At the same time, yeah, I've definitely seen coaches that will keep quiet as they move up. They'll just want to ingratiate their athletes, particularly at the high-end team sports where, you know, in basketball, they're on huge amounts of money. Same in, in football over here and, and even rugby, you know, the, the salaries are getting up. They'll want to say the right things to them so that player likes them. And, you know, that never really gets you where you want to get to as a in any respect, you know. just If, if you just want to be liked, you're probably in the wrong in the wrong job, you know? Yeah. It, it seems also to me, at least I can only speak to tennis. That's really the only sport that I know intimately, but it, it also seems that there are real differences in athletes where 
some athletes really want the hard word and some just sort of want to be want their confidence boosted and want to be told that they're great and yeah I'm, I'm definitely on the opposite side of that but um yes it, it's interesting it must be so complicated to in a team of 20 to figure out how best to approach each individual to get the best result out of each individual when they're just so different yeah but you have your basics your foundations and then you start to individualize and you just listen you become a good listener that that, that it's interesting you said that about how some athletes respond to other things. I remember having a conversation with a very good coach that's had multiple Olympic gold medalists and this athlete who's had, you know, I can't remember how many gold medals he's won, but he's won a a fair amount. He never wanted to be told anything other than just say how good I am. Just tell me I'm great, (laughs) you know, and he didn't want any critical feedback. He just wanted to be told that all the time. And it it worked for him, whereas others want that stick they want to be told all the time if they've slightly off their game if some their times on their splits are a tiny bit down they want to get hammered on it so you only know that by knowing the athlete and knowing what buttons to press and opening up those conversations right yeah that's so interesting because especially if i told a coach to just tell me how great i am it would just become meaningless to me (laughs) (laughs) to to each their own yeah that's it well i want to get on to the second part um of this conversation but i can't really not talk about your playing career without talking about the olympics like two olympic games first new zealand medal in tennis for over a century in in tokyo has that been your best moment to date as a tennis player hands down yeah without a doubt and what made it so special did you know i was at rio and wasn't at tokyo and it's obviously two incredibly different olympic games because of covid but Talk us through perhaps to the listener on what the Tokyo experience was like for you and those moments where you knew you were in a position from the semi-finals onwards, really, you were in a position to get a medal. Yeah, so I think the for a bit of context, I hadn't been able to go home to New Zealand since the middle of 2020 because the borders were closed with COVID. So coming into Tokyo, I was missing home already pretty strongly. And the New Zealand team just does an incredible job of transporting the New Zealand culture to their building at the Olympics to the point where, you know, you you arrive at the building and the whole support team and a bunch of the athletes will do a haka to welcome you in. I'm sure you've been on the receiving end of a haka. It's goosebumps stuff. So, you know, I arrive at this building missing home and, get greeted with that. And, you know, I'm already, already super emotional about that. And then we were given these, uh, there's a, there's a stone in New Zealand called Punamu. It's like a type of greenstone. And we were given these greenstone medallions that were all carved from one piece of rock for the people who were representing New Zealand at the Olympics to convey this idea of unity and team and oneness. And just these things that it just felt like I was at home. It felt, it felt like I'd come home in Tokyo. That was just incredible. And there's this term in, in Māori mana, which is like sort of life energy, life force. And the amount of mana that I felt in that building in Tokyo was immense. And so that just, yeah, as a bit of context, this, this, culture this atmosphere and this environment in the New Zealand building in Tokyo was phenomenal and Mike and I thanked everyone there profusely and and you know gave a bunch of gifts and stuff but really nothing can can thank the team enough for for creating that environment it's truly special so yeah that that was how we how we lived for a couple of weeks but on the other hand it was really strange because uh, New Zealand was taking COVID extremely seriously we were keeping apart from every other country. We were not really speaking to other people in the team for more than sort of 10 minutes because we didn't want to be close contacts because, you know, it's, it's not just one person who gets taken out if they get tested positive. But if you've been speaking with someone for more than 15 minutes within, I think it was like a one and a half, two meter radius, then that person would be taken out as well. So everyone was really trying to do their bit to minimize the chance of screwing up an Olympic campaign for, for anyone else. So that was, it was really strange. Uh, but despite that, somehow we managed to maintain this feeling of team and that like we are all Kiwi 
And yeah, it was also, I mean, our tournament got impacted by COVID a bit. So our second round opponents, we found out about half an hour before we were going to walk out for the match that one of them had tested positive. So we got to walk over in the second round and had an incredible win in the quarterfinals over the number one, I think they were the number one team in the world at the time, or at least top three. And that moment, knowing that you're in the last four and that you you play the next two matches for a medal, that was a little overwhelming. I teared up a little bit after that match. And then we got absolutely slammed in the semis. Those guys, we played a, a Croatian pair and they came out absolutely firing and didn't let us get the engine started at all. And we walked straight from that match court out to the practice court and spent a couple of hours going over why it went badly, how we could avoid that same situation happening in the bronze medal match the next day and going through a bunch of plays that we could turn to when things got tight. And I honestly, I think that practice is why we won the bronze in the end because we'd just had a terrible experience in the semis and we came together as a team, me, Mike, and the coach, Christoph. And by the end of that practice, we'd turned around that feeling from, from being pretty terrible and dejected into like, okay, we've got a plan. And like, we've got 24 hours and we're going to nail it. And we actually, we played really well in the bronze match and uh, yeah, finished really strong. And I was a sobbing wreck for about 30 minutes afterwards. <laughs> the planning around post that, because... Another thing that you see a lot in, in team sports and individual sports is you plan for next games, but you don't always plan if things don't go the way you want to go. So if you fail or you've lost a game, there's more of a reaction. Like, I mean, in an extreme terms, you know, after a rugby match, you might see a team singing in the change rooms. They certainly they don't. I've never seen a team singing once they've lost. Mm. It kind of almost like you, you dim the lights and um, everyone gets in doom and gloom and you don't get into that fix it feeling which you obviously did was that a collective kind of got in the changing room afterwards the three of you and thought there's a hot they call it the light in in the military a hot review here well let's immediately let's get back on court and fix things i mean both me and mike are just extremely proud kiwis and love representing the country so that was one thing was like you know this is big like this is this is the olympics we've got to figure this out and the second thing was the olympics is unique in tennis and that if you lose that semi-final match, you've got another chance. There aren't any other tournaments where you lose a semi-final and you've got another shot. You're out if, if you lose in, in general. So, you know, our, our Olympic campaign wasn't over. So it was like, okay, we can take this loss, take it to heart, go and mope for the next 12 hours and then try and lift ourselves up before the next match. Or we can say, okay, we're now in a situation where we can win a medal for New Zealand tomorrow how do we do that? Like, this is still an incredible opportunity. And in that situation, it didn't feel like there was any other option. It, it just felt right. It felt, it felt like there was nothing else that we could do except go out on the practice court and say, how are we going to do this better? And what you were saying earlier about not planning for failure, I think actually a key part of that practice was acknowledging that there would be nerves. I mean, this is a medal match. This is either we take home a medal or we go home empty-handed. And of course, there are going to be nerves. Like you're not human if you don't feel nerves in, in that situation. So when the nerves hit, when those pressure moments come, what do we feel most comfortable doing? What's going to be our, our honeypot that we can just go back to? And yeah, we, we spent quite a lot of time talking about both what we felt comfortable with and how it matched up against the opponents that we were going to play and just got really settled on what made sense. And that meant that when we got into tight moments the next day and when we got into those tight moments, we went to the honeypot and more often than not, it worked. And, you know, at the end of the day, in most tennis matches, if you win 51% of the points, you win the match. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was a hell of a roller coaster those couple of days, but, uh, but yeah, it worked out. I can imagine it was. And, and a few months later, you got given another award, the Arthur Ashe Humanitarian Award in, in December, I think you got given it. And the list of previous recipi recipients is, is, is unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, it's like literally it's the who's who of tennis. And then you can throw in Nelson Mandela as well into the, into the mix, you know, and Carlos Moyer and Andre Gatt. I mean, it just kept, carries on. To the listener, you know, well, I'd like you to, to say, well, you know, why... 
why did you get the award and and talk a little bit about then a high impact athletes yeah so so i got the award because of high impact athletes and it actually feels a little unfair that i got the award because high impact athletes is a collective like it's a group of people who are all doing good together but yeah so i i had this idea to start high impact athletes a little over a year ago and and essentially it's trying to build a movement of athletes and coaches and agents and people affiliated with sports to do the maximum amount, amount of good in the world possible. And that last sentence, the maximum amount of good possible, that sounds like a real no brainer, but when you actually go into what that looks like, it gets quite complicated and, and quite complex. So high impact athletes aims to simplify that process as much as possible so that people who want to do good in the world can come to high impact athletes and say, how do I do this? And they have really clear and evidence-based answers to that question. And yeah, I, I mean, that, that award was, it was entirely unexpected. I was actually, I was in Portugal on holiday at the time when, when I got the call and one of the ATP management people, they messaged asking if I had a couple of minutes to chat and Actually, I sit on this thing called the ATP player council at the moment, which is basically just firefighting all the time. And I was like, oh God, what's, what's happened now? He called and said, Hey, you won this award. And I was, I was, yeah, I was blown away. And then yeah, looking down that list, it's, I mean, it's incredibly humbling, but as I say, it's, it's a group of people who are all doing good and it's only impactful because there are so many people doing good. And, you know, I have to also say, thank you for being part of it. You know, I mean, your, your name and your influence and, and your donations are part of that award. So, you know, I, th I think you should give yourself a, a pat on the back for it as well. <laughs> well, I mean, the only, you know, the, the only reason that I got involved in it really was because for, for what, how you have set it up is it just makes so much sense on so many different levels that you can really target where you want to give, right? And, you know, I remember a few years ago, I wanted to set up my own charity and own foundation and it was almost you got I got to the point after a load of research I was replicating stuff there was no there was no point in me doing that other than perhaps probably shouldn't I probably wouldn't have admitted it at the time that your ego quite likes to like say you've got your own charity or foundation but actually if somebody else is going to have done all the work for you and you can tap into the gr a greater a bigger organization that can really add value for what you're giving is brilliant. So, you know, I'm only um, summarizing this, but effectively what you do is you filter out, you find the charities that really deliver the biggest. So, you know, in, in, in simple terms, if I'm to give a dollar, you know, how much of that dollar actually goes to where it's supposed to go and how much of a difference it makes. That's one of the fundamentals, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's all based around the idea. So for the first half of this chat, we were talking about optimization, right? About how to get the most out of every hour of your day. And we, as, as coaches, as athletes, we think about that every single day. People in business think about that every single day. How do I push my business forward the most with every unit of resource I spend on it? And it just makes sense to think about the charity space like that. How can I do the most good for each dollar that I donate? But unfortunately, that type of thinking doesn't happen as much in the charity space as in other areas and it should in my opinion because if you can do a thousand times the amount of good with one charity compared to another then you probably should do a thousand times the amount of good and that sounds like an exaggeration but the research bears it out that some charities can be literally a thousand times more impactful per dollar than others so High Impact Athletes works with research organizations who spend 40,000 hours a year trying to find those 1,000x opportunities in the charity space. And we package those charities up and present them to the people who want to do good in the world. It's, it's a very simple concept. And we don't actually touch any of the money. Essentially, what we are is an, is an education service. We just try to educate people about the fact that where we give matters hugely and connect them to the right places and where did your initial thought process go to lead you to st setting up high impact athletes having been a professional athlete now for 15 years or so i've always struggled with how self-centered sport is and 
that's necessary if you want to get to the top of any sport, I think. I think that sort of self-absorption is necessary, but I don't like it. And I've, I've never liked it. It's never sat perfectly with who I want to be off the court. So I, th I think in uh, 2014 or 2015 was the first year where I actually put money away in the bank at the end of the year with tennis. And for the first time, I felt like I could breathe a bit of a sigh of relief because I felt like I could support myself and make a living from this thing. And with that bit of relief came this really strong urge to balance the scales a bit because I'd just been taking from the world. I'd been flying around to different tournaments, you know, focusing on myself. And I felt like I, I had to give back and, and try and even things up. And I had no idea how I, I didn't identify with the charities that I'd grown up around, you know, at school, we did like the 40 hour famine for, for world vision or that sort of thing. It didn't feel effective enough for me. So, you know, like, like any good millennial, I jumped on the internet and typed in something like, how do I give back best or something like that? And eventually I came across this, this movement called effective altruism. And what we were talking about, the idea of, of getting the maximum amount of good out of each unit of resource, that's the, that's the core tenet of effective altruism. And so I started reading about these ideas and was just blown away. And yeah, started donating that year made a pledge to give a percentage of my income to these effective organizations the next year, built that up, built that up. Then actually when COVID hit in, in 2020, I had more time to think than I'd basically ever had in my career. You know, the tour stopped, uh, didn't really have anything to do. And I was thinking, am I personally maximizing my own impact in the world? And from a donation point of view, I felt like I was. Uh, at that point, I was donating 10% of my annual income. And I essentially just lost my job because if I'm not on a tennis court playing matches, I'm not earning. So I didn't feel like I could give more money, but I felt like I could be a better advocate. I felt like I could bring more people along on this journey because this is one lever that we have as athletes or as, as coaches is we have a platform to speak from. And if we can convince just one other person to come on this journey with us, we've just doubled our impact. So I realized that I could be doing a much better job in that direction. And ultimately that led to the idea of high impact athletes, creating a, a movement that could hopefully develop its own momentum and, and become this sort of epicenter of athletes doing good and something that athletes wanted to be a part of. And it was sort of like a, you know, like a social proof, like it was a, a good thing, a cool thing to be doing as an athlete. And I don't think we're there quite yet, but uh, yeah, I, I hope we can get there. And some of the reactions from, from the athletes you've spoken to and that have, have jo joined in as well, I imagine that's been, that's been pretty good to hear that you're not alone. That's been the, by far the most validating thing about it. It's been, it's been so beautiful. I honestly, I thought it was just going to be me harassing my friends, trying to get them on board with this thing. But, you know, we've, we've been running a little over 13 months now and we have over a hundred people involved. We've got people across, I think about 30 different sports. And it's so wonderful to speak to people and see this click moment where you see people understand why this is important. And actually often a reaction is, is almost relief. Like I feel like a, a lot of athletes have been looking to do something like this, but don't trust. They don't trust the athlete, the, the charities that they've been approached by, you know, as, as athletes get bigger and more famous, they sort of have to build more layers of defense between themselves and people who are looking to take their time or energy or money. And so for another athlete to come along and say, hey, here's all of this research behind why these charities are incredible. I do it myself. Do you want to join me? Is like, oh, yeah, like this, this is something I can get behind. I've been waiting for something like this. Actually, a, a sprint record holder, an Oceania record holder, her response was stop talking and take my credit card, which is, which is beautiful. But it's like, yeah, okay, this, this is a, a powerful idea and, and people are really identifying with it. And that's just been a beautiful thing to see. Yeah, I can imagine it's been very, um, well, it shows you the good, the good in people and what's possible. And one of the things you talk about in uh, High Impact Athletes is improving people's quality of life. What would you see as quality of life? How, do you, how would you measure that? This is something that's 
quite easy to forget about because how I would measure my own quality of life is drastically different from how a billion people in the world, the, the poorest billion people in the world would me measure their quality of life. Because for me, you know, I like having a really tasty cup of coffee in the morning. I like, I like spending a bit of extra money on, on getting really top quality coffee beans. You know, I might spend twice as much on getting really nice beans, but that extra amount of money that I spend on coffee could be literally life-changing for a few people in the poorest places in the world. So most of us in developed countries are operating at the, at the very peak of Maslow's hierarchy, right? We're, we're thinking about self-actualization. We're thinking about, you know, that extra 1% of luxury or of fulfillment or of, you know, chasing our dreams. But the reality for around a billion people in the world is how do I get shelter? How do I stay healthy? How do I go to school or get my kids to go to school? And it doesn't really need to be the case. And it's, it's that lowest level of the pyramid of the basics, food, shelter, and health that most of the charities in the, in the human space on HIA work in. It's, you know, people should be able to live healthily and get an education. Uh, and unfortunately, that's really not the case for, for a lot of people. So, yeah, that's that's um, quite a sad way to think about it. But when when you're talking about improving quality of life, really, it's firstly about staying alive, and that's what a, what a lot of these charities focus on. Yeah, and and where do you things like possessions? Do you have a slightly different view on possessions and how you regard them and value them now? I consider myself quite lucky in this sense and that I've never really wanted or needed expensive stuff. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's something I was taught by my parents. I mean, you know, my parents aren't materialists at all. They care about experiences and, and doing nice things and having nice connections rather than buying a fancy car or that sort of stuff. So I think that's been passed down, but learning more about this space and about how many people live in such suboptimal conditions, I think has made me more aware of my own privilege and much more aware that this privilege is just luck. It's the birth lottery and we can't pick where we're born. And I could have been born in any number of the poorest countries in the world and my life would be drastically different. So just acknowledging that and realizing that I don't need to buy a fancy watch because the money that would have gone towards that can improve thousands of lives. And actually, when it comes down to it, this is something I really believe. I think it might sound a bit sort of cliche, but if I give that money away and know that it's improving lives, ultimately, I'm going to be happier. I'm going to have a, a, a more joyous life doing that than wearing a shiny watch. And I, I truly do believe that. But I think that can be a difficult one for some people. Another difficult one for you will be that you're optimizing your your life as an athlete and as a person but you're also by necessity having to have a carbon footprint with traveling around the world have you got any tips or tools on on how you try to offset that and reduce that yeah so this is actually this has developed for me over the years because i've always been pretty guilty about it i mean i think tennis players are probably the worst in the world i mean our season lasts for close to 11 months of the year and most tournaments are in different countries, different cities and different countries. So if we want to be professional tennis players, we have to fly a ton. For years, I was doing direct carbon offsetting through, I was using a company called Atmosphere, which was based out of Germany. And basically I had an app where I would track all of the flying that I did and then uh, take the amount of kilometers that I flew. And there was a, I actually, I got pretty deep into this. I came up with my own highly conservative number, meaning accounting more for things like how high in the atmosphere airplanes fly because that the fact that they're emitting high in the atmosphere means that uh, the emissions are more damaging to the atmosphere, just this sort of stuff. So I went pretty deep into the research and basically came with a number of how many tons of carbon dioxide equivalent I had to offset in any given year. And went through that organization to offset it. And even being pretty harsh on myself around that number, you know, for me flying around the world for most of the year, I, I think most years I was, I was paying about 1500 to 2000 euro to offset. And then the next step for me 
was going deeper into the research of what were the most effective climate change organizations in the world. And it leads to places like Clean Air Task Force, Carbon 180, Terrapraxis, Cool Earth, these sorts of places where based on their statistics and based on research, they can be sort of 15 to 100 times more cost effective than direct carbon offsetting programs at eliminating CO2 equivalent from the atmosphere. So now what I do is uh, I donate to the Clean Air Task Force every year. And I go well beyond what my carbon footprint probably is, but I also just feel like, you know, the more CO2 equivalent we can remove from the atmosphere, the better. So yeah, that's, for me, it's quite a mercenary response. You know, I, I am donating and I do feel like it's a band-aid rather than a solution. I'm hoping that when my tennis days are over, I'll be able to stay put and live a much more carbon-friendly life. But yeah, while I'm still playing tennis, I'm I'm trying to patch over it as best as best as I can. Well, no, you're definitely doing more than that. One question that I'm quite interested in from a lot of my guests is: any books recently that you've read, or anything that's is there anything that sticks out? Any books that you you'd like to, you know, encourage the listeners to to thumb? I think one book that's just incredible that speaks to this effective altruism space and the amount of good we can do as an individual, and it's actually very light reading is called The Life You Can Save by Peter Singer. And actually, they offer it free. So you could either go to the Life You Can Save website or on the High Impact Athletes website, there's a like a banner or something that pops up where you can get a free audiobook or, or ebook. It's an amazing read. Peter Singer is considered the most influential philosopher alive today. And he's such a clear thinker and a clear writer. It will punch you in the face, but in the best possible way. And then the other, the other book that came up, I don't know why it came up, but it's called Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein. And it's, it's sort of considered one of the seminal pieces of sci-fi writing. But the reason I love it is because it examines human behavior and human social norms from an outsider's perspective. And it really unpacks these things that we just find normal and exposes them for being the bizarre things that they are. And yeah, I think, uh, I think it's a good one for just thinking twice about the things that you think are normal and natural. And I, that's always a good thing is, you know, examining, examining your own habits and, and impulses. Marcus is a really thoughtful human being. He needs to get every ounce of ability out of himself every time he hits the court. Such is the competition in pro tennis. I used to think tennis players were good athletes, but perhaps not top of the tree when comparing them to other sports. Now that view has changed dramatically for me as I've witnessed firsthand how hard they work and how the games, wherever they are in the world, come fast and furiously, meaning they really need to be physically and mentally on it all the time. I've recently joined the performance advisory group for the LTA and that has only reinforced the demands on athletes and coaches and the growth they can all make too. Later on in the series, I have more conversations around the mental side of sport with amazing world-class operators like Jim Lair, psychologist to many top-end athletes like golfers Marco Mira and Justin Rose, and tennis players like Jim Courier, Andre Agassi, and Monica Sellis. I think all of us that operate in teams can learn a lot from individual athletes. In a team, if you don't do what you should do in recovery day or the night before a game, well, it probably gets swept up into the overall team performance. Now, it undoubtedly makes a difference, but it's just not as obvious as it is with an individual athlete. Having that mindset as a team athlete is one I really encourage with all the athletes and coaches I work with, and it just focuses the mind more clearly and the processes you need away from those coaching staff and the team training grounds. Marcus and I mentioned plenty of resources in this show and I'll reference and link all of them and more in the show notes that are available at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast and in the show description on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. One reference was about high performance athletes and if you want to find out more about them then go to highimpactathletes.org. As Marcus mentioned, I am an advocate and a pledger to HIA 
as I know the money I donate goes to make a real change and all the charities associated maximise what you donate to what they do. Marcus can also be found on social media at Marcus Daniel with two L's on Twitter and Instagram, where you can also reach out to him there. Thank you also to Catherine Sport, who wrote a review on Apple Podcasts recently. As she said, fabulous insight on performance, motivation and success from such a variety of people, but most importantly delivered in a thoughtful and honest way. Just like Ben's book, Seven's Heaven, thoroughly enjoyable. As I said at the top of the show, reviews really help boost our profile on Apple to bring in more listeners and helps the whole thing spiral upwards and get better. So thank you if you've done that. But it's also great to know that the content we're creating is useful. See you all next week. This has been Culture and Performance with Ben Ryan. Ben Ryan.